0: Preach the word in season. Preach the word out of season. Preach the word with great patience and instruction. Preach with patience. Preach with patience and instruction. The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church we'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So let's now open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the Scriptures and let them speak.
1: Uh, let's open our Bibles back up to 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, just to remind ourselves a little bit of uh, what we just saying about how the, the Lord of glory was born into a sinful, cursed earth uh, to bring us redemption. And uh, we're very grateful uh, for that. But uh, back in First Peter chapter 2, just to remind ourselves of the context here, uh, the book of First Peter was written during the early 60s, uh, during the reign of a madman named Nero. Uh, history tells us that in 64 AD, Rome experienced one of the worst fires in history. Uh, it began in some cluttered shops around Rome and even when the first fires were put out it would start again in another place and the fire continued to burn and it was rumored that while Rome was burning this madman Nero was amusing himself with entertainments one historian writes that the opinion of all cast the hatred and disgust of causing the fire upon the emperor and he was believed in this way to have sought for the glory of building a new city And in fact, Nero could by any means he tried, could not by any means he tried, escape from the charge that the fires had been caused by his orders. And uh, what he did in order to turn the attention away from himself is he turned it to a group of people who were already hated, who are known as Christians. And the, the reason that Christians became such an easy scapegoat for Nero is because they were already looked at with suspicion. Uh, Tacitus, a Roman historian, writes that Nero fastened guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians. Uh, Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate, and a most mischievous superstition was put in check. That was how Christians were were looked at, this, this kind of mischievous superstition. And the reason why Christians became the scapegoat is because Christians just didn't fit in. They didn't fit into the culture that was around them. In our day, it seems like Christians are bending backwards in order for the culture around us to to accept us, but that's never been how true Christians have been accepted. True, true, True Christians never really fit in. And Peter reminds us that our relationship to this present world is as aliens. We're aliens in this present world. And in relationship to our Future home, we're scattered, we're exiles, but in relationship to God, we're chosen and beloved by Him. But we've always been on the outside with the world. We're chosen and beloved by God, but we've always been on the outside in the world. Uh, Christians were considered the haters of humanity because they didn't worship the Roman gods. They didn't revere Caesar as Lord, and they didn't join in the ancient celebrations and festivals. And because of that, they were considered to be the haters of humanity and there are more similarities in our modern day than you may realize. Because Christians today may be considered the haters of humanity because we can't join in a celebration of a month that's dedicated to the promotion of depravity. So, so the Christians are considered haters. When we can't bow the knee to a government that is increasingly hostile, the Christians are called haters. And when we can't acknowledge every other religion... As an equally valid way to worship God, the Christians are called haters. You know, you're the haters of humanity. Why can't you just live and let live? Why can't you just let everybody worship the way that they choose? I mean, who are you to impose your religion on anybody else? You know, the Christians are the haters of humanity. Even though the message that we have to give is a message of the greatest love, a message that that would receive the greatest blessings, and it gives the, the greatest offer of eternal life, but we're still considered those who are the haters of humanity. We simply don't fit in, and the true Christians never have. And because Christians didn't fit in, they experienced the injustice from every sector of society, uh, whether they were slandered, falsely, accused, insulted, verbally abused, harshly treated, or they experienced acts of evil against them. And uh, Peter seizes this opportunity to remind these Christians about how believers are to respond even in the midst of unjust suffering. You're going to face suffering that's unjust. There's going to be times when when you're slandered, when you're insulted, when you're verbally abused, maybe even attacked, your character being attacked. But Peter says this is the way that you can respond to a hostile world. There's going to be unjust suffering from every sector of society. And Peter says this is the way that you can respond in verse 12. He spoke of the the Christians' relationship to the unbelieving world that slandered them. They slander you as evildoers, but you are to do good. You're to do good to those who slander you. Same thing that Jesus taught us, right? In the Sermon on the Mount, we're to do good and to, to bless those who curse us. In verses 13 to 17, Peter addresses how Christians are to relate to an unbelieving government. You're still to submit. Even if the government becomes increasingly hostile and even foolish, we're still called to submit and to do what is right. And again, it's God who determines what is right. You know, so, so we're still to submit in the ways that we can to government when it doesn't come into conflict with what the Lord has commanded us to do. And then beginning in verse 18, Peter addresses the relationship between Christians and those who would have assumed, been assumed to be unbelieving masters, those who were the masters over them, and even sometimes those who could become harsh and unreasonable. And why do I say they would have been assumed to be unbelieving masters? We know that uh, Peter talks about submitting to your masters, but why do I say that they're assumed to be unbelieving masters? There's actually an an observation that some commentators have picked up on, and I think this is helpful uh, to point out here, that Peter makes a list of categories, and, and it's a list of categories that we really see all over Scripture, And sometimes we find these kinds of of lists outside of Scripture. It's referred to as the the household code. It's a a description of the responsibilities that we have to different people who are at different levels in society. And there's actually this responsibility that we'll find uh, throughout Scripture. It'll talk about this in Ephesians 6 and Colossians chapter 3, uh, other portions of Scripture, that there's a responsibility that you have to certain people uh, depending on where they are in society. There's a responsibility that we have to the government. There's a responsibility that you have within the marriage relationship. Uh, there's a responsibility that you have within the, uh, the parent and children relationship. You know, so Scripture will talk about these different relationships and what's the responsibility that we have to each one. And there's a, a list, like I said, we find these lists all over Scripture. You know, Ephesians 6, Colossians 3, uh, Titus chapter 2. But often when we find these kinds of lists in Scripture, we find them in pairs, okay? We find them in pairs. Uh, So there's instruction for the the husband, and then there's instruction for the, the wives. There's instruction for the children, and there's instruction for the parents. There's instruction for the slaves, and then there's instruction for the masters, right? And that's the kind of list that we find all over in Scripture. But in 1 Peter, there's no instruction for the master. And the reason that might have been the case is because the masters in this context were unbelieving, And there is no instruction to the unbeliever besides to repent and trust in Jesus Christ. So there is no instruction that's given here for the master. Just like there's no instruction that's given here, specifically here, for the government. Because the government, too, was considered unbelieving. So scripture elsewhere gives instruction for believing masters. We know that in Ephesians 6 verse 9. You know, masters do the same things to them. Give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven. In Colossians chapter 4 and verse 1, masters grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. But here when we get into 1 Peter, there's no instruction for the masters at all. And it's likely because these masters were unbelieving. And Peter is referring to submitting to those who would even be unbelieving masters. And honestly, that's where a lot of us live, isn't it? We have to give submission to people who do not know the Lord. Unbelieving masters. And we work for people who are unbelievers. And some might be relatively good and gentle, but then there's others who are harsh and unreasonable. And we may find ourselves, in some cases, suffering unjustly underneath their authority. You know, how should we respond when we find ourselves in that kind of situation? When an authority figure is not respectable and the decisions that they make are foolish. And even when you're doing the right thing, you still seem to suffer for it. If you can't remove yourself from that situation and gain some freedom from that, how, how do you respond if you have to stay in that? And this is where we left off last time. Number one, in First Peter chapter two and verse eighteen, it lets us know that we're to submit. There's a mandate for submission. Back again in First Peter chapter two, verse eighteen, servants be submissive to your masters. Now, that word uh, for submissive means to fall in rank, to fall in line, you know, to fall in order. There's, there's a submission of respect that you're supposed to give to the masters to fall in line, to be obedient. There's also a, a certain manner of our submission. In verse 18 again, be submissive to your masters, but how? With all respect. And we can serve with all respect, you know, those that we might believe are respectable, but how do you serve those that you don't believe are respectable? How, how do you do that? You can serve with all respect when you know that our ultimate master is Jesus Christ, That it's not about them, it's about the master who is over them. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 and 24, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord, rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. And then the, the men that we're to give submission to are not just the good and gentle, but even to the harsh and unreasonable. These are the men that we give submission to. Verse 18 goes on to say, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. And then we have the motivation for this submission. The the motivation is the favor of God. Look at verse 19. For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly, for what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. And and there's a a celebration of, of grace in your life when you bear up under unjust suffering with the mind towards God. And, and when it's innocent suffering and when you bear with it in patience, that's the, the, the word credit that's given in verse 20 for what credit is there. That word credit is uh, from a, a Greek word kleos, uh, which uh, comes from a word that means celebration. You know, what, what kind of celebration would there be if you just suffer because of what you should have been suffering for? Because you've done wrong. There's no celebration because of that. But for those who suffer unjustly with the mind towards God, the Bible says that there is a celebration over that kind of individual. There's a celebration over you when you suffer unjustly with a, a, an attitude towards the Lord when it's innocent and when you bear up under it patiently because you've done it for the Lord. That's the, when there's the celebration and that should be the, the motivation for us. But the question that we left off with last time is, is who in the world does this? <laughs> who does this? Who, who suffers unjustly and actually puts up with it? Who knows when they're innocent and they're being treated as if they're guilty and they just keep their mouth shut? Who does that? And and where in the world are we supposed to find an example like that? And we know of at least one, right? Which is where the, the following verse verses take us, because Jesus Christ Himself is the model of submission, the model of submission, and he willingly suffered unjustly. Let's take a look again at first Peter chapter two, starting at verse twenty one. It says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed, for you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Why don't you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we come before you this afternoon, Lord, as we always do. Lord, looking to you for your help. Lord, as we open up your word, we understand that this is a word that you've authored. This word comes from you. And, uh, Father, in order to, to understand this book, Lord, we have to submit ourselves to the author of this book. Uh, Father, without a, a trust in you, without faith in you, Lord, it's impossible to, to truly understand the things that have been written. And, uh, Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. And, Father, that you would use me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's this uh, uh, quote that says, I'm, I'm not afraid to die. Uh, I just don't want to be there when it happens. And I think that, uh, that most of us can relate to that, you know, that we, we really don't want to be there. <laughs> uh, uh, even though the, as believers we understand that the Lord has taken out the, the sting of death, you know, it's been removed. According to 1 Corinthians 15 and 55, uh, the Bible lets us know that death doesn't have the victory over the believer uh, because the power of sin has been canceled. And uh, we're no longer subject to slavery of the fear of death as uh, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 15 says, but I think most of us would still not like to be there when it happens. You know, we hope that, uh, that we're out, out of it or either put out quick. Uh, but when we think about the, the death of Christ, it was anything but quick. It, it was anything but, but a peaceful and, and gentle passing away. When we think about the, the death of, of Christ, it was a violent and torturous death. It wasn't a, a silent night. It was a night that was filled with, with the loud cries and, 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 and pain of agony. And uh, Christ didn't enjoy the the peace of of comforting words, but he instead heard the abuse and scorn that was thrown on him as he suffered and as he breathed his last. And in one word, the death of Christ could be described by the word suffering. Jesus Christ suffered. In fact, his, his suffering was so much a part of his death that sometimes that's how the biblical authors speak about the death of Christ. Instead of saying that Jesus Christ died, they say Jesus Christ suffered. Because the suffering so much characterized his death. That when you talked about the suffering, you were talking about the way that he died. In Luke chapter 24, verse 46, just for a couple examples, Luke twenty-four forty-six, it says, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. Tot- totally skips over the, the point that he died. He just suffered and then he'll raise, be raised again on the third day. It's using suffering as a synonym for his death. He suffered and then he will rise again. Acts chapter 17, verse 3, Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. The death is assumed in the suffering. Acts 26, verse 23, Christ was to suffer, and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Suffering was a synonym for the death of Jesus Christ. Actually, when, uh, if you've ever heard that term, the passion of the Christ, the passion of the Christ. Uh, That's actually what we're talking about. Uh, The uh, passion, the word passion comes from the the Latin pati, uh, which simply means to endure or to suffer. When we we talk about the passion of the Christ, we're talking about the suffering of the Christ. We use it as a synonym for his death. And I find it interesting that that Peter, uh, more than any other writer of Scripture, speaks about the death of Christ in terms of his suffering, which is interesting because Peter, more than any other disciple, wanted nothing to do with the sufferings. If you remember back in uh, Matthew chapter 16, in uh, verses 21 to 22, it says that Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised up on the third day. And Peter says, no, 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 not not that Lord. You know, let let me pull, let me, can, can we talk for a minute, you know, took him aside, pulled him aside, and began to rebuke him. God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. And I, I think Peter just, you know, forgot who he was talking to. You know, you're, you're talking to the Lord, and now you're saying, God forbid it, Lord? You're, you're talking to God here, God in the flesh. But now he's saying, oh, God forbid it. Why did he say that? Because suffering was so out of order for him. Like, like Lord, this shouldn't happen to you. He was opposed to the suffering of Christ. And now he's the one who's talking about it. Later on, when Jesus began to suffer, Peter denied that he even knew the Lord because he wanted to distance himself from the suffering of Jesus Christ. But later on, we find that Peter himself, according to church history, literally followed in the footsteps of the Savior himself and was crucified upside down, followed in the footsteps of the cross. Peter started to understand what it meant to look like to follow Jesus in his suffering and to identify himself with the suffering of Jesus Christ. And Peter, more than any other author of Scripture, speaks about the death of Christ in terms of his suffering. 1 Peter 1.11, the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. 1 Peter four one, Christ has suffered in the flesh. 1 Peter 4.13, the sufferings of Christ... 1 Peter 5 verse 1, therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ. Again, talking about his death. And in chapter 2 and verse 21, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Peter finally embraced the suffering of Jesus Christ and he writes this letter to help other believers embrace the suffering of Christ as well. And you may wonder, what does Christ... Suffering have to do with the suffering that I endure, you know, on the workplace or in society or in my home, and the answer is absolutely everything, (laughs) absolutely everything. And this is where the Sunday school answer works. You know, Jesus. You know, you just give Jesus as the answer. You know, you know, don't know what else to say. It's got to be Jesus, right? This is where it works. Jesus is the answer. If you're wondering, how do I respond? To this challenge that I'm facing at work, I, I know how I responded before I was a Christian. How do I respond now? What's the standard? The standard is Jesus. Is, is there any help that I should be expecting now that I am a believer? I mean, what kind of resources do I have available to me now that I'm a Christian? You know what the answer is? Jesus. And where should I turn to for relief and comfort from all that I'm facing? I feel so unprotected out here, I feel like I'm alone. Do you know where you're going to find relief and comfort? Jesus. Jesus is your standard. He's the model and example that you can pattern your life after. We can follow him when we don't know how to respond. When you don't know what to do, look to Jesus. Jesus is your substitute. And and as unbearable as your circumstances might seem to you, you can look for help to Jesus. He gives us the ability to bear up under what we face. Jesus is our helper. And finally, Jesus is your shepherd. He's the one who who protects you when you feel unprotected. When you feel like you're alone, you need to understand that there is a shepherd who watches over your soul. We have the ever watchful shepherd who is always with us and hasn't lost one sheep yet. The answer is Jesus. And all of this is a result of his suffering for us. So let's take a look at, at each of these aspects of the suffering of Jesus Christ. Number one, he's our suffering standard. Our suffering standard. Look again at uh, verses twenty-one to twenty-three. First Peter 2 21 to twenty-three it says, "For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously." Jesus becomes the perfect model, the perfect example for us in our suffering. And that's for a number of reasons. Number one, no one ever suffered as unjustly as Jesus did. You know, you may think of yourself as like, you know, what I'm facing is so unfair, it's unjust. You know, I don't deserve this. But who suffered more for what he did not deserve than Jesus Christ? None of us can claim to be completely innocent when we suffer. Even if we are innocent of what we've been accused of, we can't claim to be innocent. You know, I think about that, you know, sometimes if I'm, if I'm stopped on the road, you know, the, 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 the red and blue lights, boo, behind you, right? And you, you're just thinking, it's like, I, I know I did not exceed the speed limit. And you might get a ticket anyway, even though you think, like, you know, look at this other guy speeding past why, me. Why doesn't he get the ticket? Amen. Amen. <laughs> But then sometimes I think in the back of my mind, you know what? There are times when I exceeded the speeding limit and I didn't get a ticket. So uh, maybe this just balances it out. <laughs> you know, I, I know I'm, I might be suffering, you know, uh, unjustly now, but there's been times when I haven't suffered when I should have suffered, right? Can I, can I get an amen, somebody, right? <laughs> but that wasn't the case with Jesus Christ. When, when Jesus suffered, Jesus always suffered innocently. There was never anything that Jesus could look back in the back of his mind and say, you know what, you know, I know I didn't do it this time, but yeah, I know I did it last week. That's not the case with Jesus Christ. Every time Jesus suffered, it was innocent suffering. Even if it's true that Jesus suffered, he never suffered because of what he deserved. He never deserved a suffering. Verse 22, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Jesus was, was innocent. Nobody suffered as unjustly as Jesus did. And think about how innocent Jesus was after 33 years of exposure, right? Think about this. The enemies of Christ couldn't come up with anything against Jesus. He was able to look at his enemies in the face and and he said this, John chapter eight, verse 46. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak the truth, why don't you believe me? Jesus had the audacity to stand before his accusers and say, name one sin, I'll wait. (laughs) I'll wait around. There was not one sin that they could point out that Jesus had done. Even during his trial, they had to drum up some false charges against Jesus Christ. Matthew twenty six fifty nine says, Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus. Why was that? Because they couldn't find any true testimony against Jesus. They had to look for somebody to lie for him. There was nothing that Jesus ever did that would have been considered sinful. And after being brought before Pilate and Pilate examined him, he says, I, I don't find any guilt in this man. There's, there's nothing that he's done that's wrong. Even the centurion at the foot of the cross, after he was the one who participated in nailing him up on the cross, he says in Luke 23, verse 47, certainly this man was innocent. He hasn't done anything wrong. Not only could his enemies not find anything wrong about Jesus, neither could his friends. <laughs> those, those who knew him the best, those who, who spent three and a half years with him, those who knew him day in and day out, in every imaginable situation. His inner circle of disciples couldn't find anything wrong with them. First Peter 2.22, he committed no sin. This is from the, the mouth of Peter, who was on the inside of the inside, right? This inner circle of disciples, he says he, he hasn't done anything wrong. Later on in chapter 3 and verse 18, it says that Jesus Christ also died for sins, once for all, the just for the unjust. And the apostle John, who's arguably the the closest of all of Jesus' disciples, says this in 1 John 3 and verse 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him, what? There is no sin. There is no sin in Jesus Christ. It was Jesus' testimony about himself. I always do the things that are pleasing to him, speaking about his Father. It was the uh, testimony of the, the Father from heaven, that this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, Matthew 3, verse 17. And it's why the Death of Christ, the the grave, could not hold him down. Why? Because Jesus was not a sinner. There's nothing that he himself had done to deserve death. Death could not hold him. He was the the holy one. As Acts chapter uh, 2 and verse 27 points out, he was the holy one who would not undergo decay. Jesus never committed an evil act, spoke an evil word, had an evil thought. He lived a life that was completely controlled, dominated by the Spirit of God. No accusation could stick against Jesus but yet, Jesus suffered. And he's the perfect example of suffering unjustly. He's also the perfect example of unjust suffering because of how he endured his suffering. Look at verse 23. It says, And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That word for, uh, for being reviled there, it's a, a Greek word, lloyd uh, doreo. It's a word that means to be abused by speech, insulted, railed against. It's a word that's filled with strife, contention. It's the, 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 the weapon of words. Using your words as a weapon against somebody. You know, the, somebody who's just trying to chop you down, just going to put you in your place. You, you've, you've had conversations like that, right? Where somebody's trying to put you in your place. Let, let, me know who's, let me let you know who's really in charge here. Let me put you in your place. But When Jesus was berated, abused, he didn't return the favor. Even though he could have. (laughs) I mean, who would have known his accusers more than Jesus Christ? He knew what was in man. He could have brought out things about his opponents that would have devastated them. But he refused to answer back. He didn't respond in kind. Uttered no threats. Even while those were inflicting suffering upon him. We're uttering threats. Look over to Matthew chapter 27 real quick. Look over to Matthew chapter 27. Just want to give you an example of what this looked like. Matthew 27. I'm going to start at verse 27. This is sobering. Matthew 27. Look at verse 27. It says, Then the soldiers of the governor, took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, and they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, "Hail, king of the Jews. They spat on him. They took the reed and began to beat him on the head. After they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him and put his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. And the whole time, they really seem like they're in charge, don't they? They take Jesus. They strip Jesus. They mock him. They spit on him. They, 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 they make a mockery out of his kingship. You know, let's throw a robe on you, Mr. King. Oh, a king needs a, needs a staff, doesn't he? You know, take a stick. Oh, a king needs a crown. Let's put that, that crown of thorns on your head. And then, in order to to, to kind of fulfill the mockery, let's show you that you really aren't in charge. Let me grab that reed out of your hand. You know, King. And I'll take the the reed, uh, the symbol of your authority, and let me me beat you on the head with it. How'd you like that one? This mockery of Jesus Christ. And the whole time that you're listening to this mockery, you would wish for once, Jesus would say, you know, I wouldn't do that if I were you. (laughs) I, I would not do that if I were you. You know, right right now, there's like twelve legions of angels that are just like eager, like just Lord, let me Adam. All, all Jesus had to do is just kind of like give the nod, like okay, you, like Adam, you can have him. <laughs> That's all Jesus had to do. <laughs> That's not the point here. <laughs> it's going to happen. Jesus Christ will one day judge, but but here the point is is that he could have done it immediately. But he patiently endured, trusting him who judges righteously. I I, I could have responded back to that last threat. I could have responded back to that last insult. But you know what? I'm not going to do it. Jesus doesn't do that. Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. How, How often are we like that when we're insulted or reviled or accused? How often do we just say, you know what? I could say something but I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to open my mouth. He committed no sin. His lips spoke no deceit. He didn't revile. He uttered no threats. And how did he do this? How is this possible for Jesus? How is this possible for anybody? Again, look at verse, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23 again. It says, while being reviled, he did not, did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But, but, and here's the contrast here, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And that, that, that word for uh, kept entrusting is an imperfect tense verb, which means it was a continual action. He continued to trust. He continued to trust. And if we're ever going to be able to endure unjust suffering, we need to have an absolute and ongoing continual trust of the Father who judges righteously. Lord, I know I don't have to do it. I don't have to avenge myself because vengeance belongs to who? Vengeance belongs to the Lord. Lord, I'm not going to do anything. I don't have to. I don't have to. And if it was up to us to make sure that every evil deed was punished and every wrong was made right and every attack was avenged, we could never endure suffering as Christ did because we'd be too worried about how are we going to get back for that one? How am I going to get him back for that one? You know, always plotting and planning in our minds of how we're going to, you know, make sure that we're vindicated. But Jesus was an example of entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And it's not that Christ wasn't concerned about injustice you know, Christ didn't just throw up his hands in defeat and say, oh, well, what can I do? There's nothing I can do anyway. There's something that we can do. We can trust. <laughs> we can trust. That's what he did. Trust the one who will always do what is right. Genesis 18, 25, Abraham asked the question, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? Well, isn't he going to do what's right? Romans 12:19. never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Hebrews 10.30, before we know him who said, vengeance is mine. And what Jesus did at this time during his incarnation is that he voluntarily laid down his rights, his privilege to take matters into his own hand. He says, I'm I'm not going to do it. Again, Matthew 26, do you not think that I cannot appeal to my father? (laughs) And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. You know what that looks like? One, one Roman legion was about 5,250 men, which means that 12 legions of angels would have been 63,000 angels. And how then will the scriptures be fulfilled to say that it must happen this way? If, if, if I wanted to right now, 63,000 angels are just ready to come. <laughs> but Jesus refuses to do it. Jesus never doubted that vengeance would be taken, but he says, I'm not going to do it now. I'm going to be an example of this perfect trust in my father. And that's why Jesus can be our perfect standard, because sometimes we suffer unjustly, but the answer for our unjust suffering, who's the model, who's the standard? The answer is Jesus. Jesus is the standard. Back in verse 21, just to let you know uh, that this unjust suffering doesn't go unnoticed, look at verse 21. It says, for you have been called for this purpose. Part of the calling as a Christian is to suffer unjustly. I'm not saying that we never exercise our rights. I'm not saying that we never try to avoid persecution where it's possible. But in those times when we can't avoid the persecution and we have to endure it, the Bible says that you've actually been called to that. The, the, there's, the sovereignty of God is in play even in your suffering. Don't, don't think that somehow God has missed out on this. And too often the first question that we ask is, is you know, how do I escape when we need to ask ourselves the other question? How, how can I endure how can I honor God in this circumstance? We've been called to this. And this assures the, those who read that God has planned all of this. And just like the, the suffering of Christ was planned by God, the suffering that we endure is also planned by God. And it's part of the calling as Christians to suffer as well. And Jesus is the example. Another thing I want to point out uh, before we leave uh, this section here, would you look at verse 21 again? for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps that's that word example it's from the greek word hopogrammas that word uh, grammas means to write and hupo means under so so there's a, a writing that's underneath and and if you remember uh, maybe when you're back in, in school, you know, trying to learn your, your letters. I, I know for, for me, there's like a, a, a page with a dotted A, you know, a dotted B, and you kind of like wrote over the letters that were already there so you could learn how to write your letters correctly. The same kind of practice happened in ancient Greek as, as well. When they were learning ancient Greek, they would actually take a, a piece of, of paper and lay it over another paper so the, the, the correct way was underneath. They'd lay a paper over that, and they would trace over that letter to to make sure that they were getting their characters right. Same kind of concept. They were tracing over that letter to make sure that they were doing it the right way. Jesus Christ is the standard that we're tracing our lives over. How how did he do it? Okay, let me do it just like that. I'm going to trace my life over the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the model for all of us. He's the standard, and he's our suffering standard. But we need more than just an example we also need some help, <laughs> right? We, we need the standard. We need to know what we're supposed to do, but we also need some help as, as well. And this is where verse 24 comes in because Jesus is also our suffering substitute. He's not, also, not just our suffering standard. He's our, our suffering substitute. Look at verse 24. It says, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. Jesus Christ has died to be our substitute, to forgive us for our sins, and also to free us to righteousness so that we can actually obey what he's telling us to do. We need that help. It was the, the, the preacher, uh, Charles Spurgeon, who said that uh, substitution is the very marrow of the whole Bible, the soul of salvation, the essence of the gospel, and we ought to saturate all of our sermons with it, for it is the lifeblood of a gospel ministry. And he also said this, that if you put away the doctrine of the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ, you've disemboweled the gospel and torn from it its very heart. The substitution of Jesus Christ is at the heart of the gospel. And there's different theories for uh, the, the sacrifice of Christ that fall short of what the Bible describes. There's a, a theory where uh, Christ is just merely an example. And we know that Christ is our example, right? Jesus is our example. But you can't. Just have an example. You need more than that. You need more than just the, the right way to do it because we fall short. There's another theory of the atonement that says that Jesus is our champion, and that's true. Jesus is the champion. Jesus Christ has triumphed over the forces of evil. It's true that Jesus Christ defeated Satan in the forces of, of evil, but we need also to be delivered from the wrath of God, not just uh, the, the cruelty of Satan. We need to be delivered from God because I've sinned against God. I need more than that. I need more than just a, uh, this, another theory of the atonement says that he's just the, the moral influence, you know, that, uh, that uh, just because of the uh, the, the sheer uh, righteousness of Christ that somehow we're just influenced by that. Because, because look at what he's done for me. I, I just ought to do what he, he's done. You know, it's just kind of moral influence view. But we need more than just persuasion. We need transformation. the The, the kind of uh, another view is just the, the, the martyr view that Jesus just died as a, a martyr because he, he just believed in it so much that he would, he would die for what he believed in. And, you know, we need to kind of follow that example. But the Bible teaches more than that. The Bible also teaches uh, what we know as penal substitution. Penal substitution, what, is, what does that mean? It, it's it's a, a legal kind of term. You know, it's, it's a, a penalty that needed to be satisfied. And it means that Jesus legally became our substitute Who in this life lived perfectly and fulfilled the law of God in my place and on the cross, the death that he took upon the cross, he took upon himself the penalties that my sins deserved. What what you need is a substitute. You need somebody who can live righteously for you and you need somebody who can take your sins for you. you. You need a substitute. Who's going to bear your sins? The Bible lets us know that Jesus is that substitute who bore our sins. Where am I going to gain righteousness to present myself before God? The Bible says that Jesus is your substitute. He's the one who's lived a righteous life before God. He bore my sins and I can take his righteousness. That's what 1 Peter 2.21 means when it says that Christ suffered for you. In your place condemned he stood, as the songwriter says. 1 Peter 3.18, he also died for sins once for all. Same truth that's found in 2 Corinthians 5.21, that, that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ died for us, for us, in our place, Who is the, the Greek word. It means as a substitute, Christ the godly one died in the place of the ungodly. Romans 5.6, for while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8. Jesus Christ is the substitute. He died in our place. He died for the ungodly. And one of the early church fathers in the second century said this, that God gave up his own son as a ransom for us, the holy one for the unjust, the innocent for the guilty, the righteous one for the unrighteous, the incorruptible for the corruptible, the immortal for the mortal. For what else could cover our sins except his righteousness? O sweet exchange, O unfathomable work of God, the sinfulness of many is hidden in the righteous one, while the righteousness of the one justifies the many. The, The hymn writer says, Man of sorrows, what a name! For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a savior! Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be. Say it with me. Hallelujah, what a Savior. But Peter takes it one step further. He says if having a Savior who bore our sins wasn't enough, he goes on to say that his death on the cross grants us freedom from sin and a freedom for righteousness. We, we've got the substitute, right? We've been declared innocent in the sight of God, but now Peter says, I'm gonna take that a step further. What Christ has also done for you is given you the power to live righteously. His death on the cross releases us from captivity to sin. He died that we may no longer live in our sin. Flip over to Romans 6 just to, just to show you this. Because uh, this, this has Romans 6 all over it. Listen to how the Apostle Paul puts it here. Romans 6, I'll start at verse, verse 5. Romans 6. Look at verse 5. It says, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. What the what the Bible lets us know is that uh, that you've died to sin and now that you can now you can truly live. I remember uh, uh, watching this this film and uh, there was this uh, it was a, a war movie and there was this guy who was like hiding out in the in the foxhole and you know screaming for his life and uh, he watched his commander who's just standing up and just taking shots at the enemy and uh, after it was all done uh, the commander came back to this this guy who was in the hole and he says uh, you know why you stayed in that hole because you still think that you're alive. <laughs> Once you've truly died, then you can truly live. <laughs> it's it's, it's this, this idea that like when we think of ourselves and, and the life that, that we have here on this earth, the Bible lets us know that we have died to sin. That this is not the world that we live in anymore. This is not, not who we are anymore. We, we've been set free. So if we think about ourselves according to this life, like, hey, I'm, I'm really not even here anymore. My life is hidden with Christ in God. Then we can start to live in the way that God has commanded us to. We, we've died to sin and now we're alive in Christ Jesus. So the question that Paul asks is, how shall we who are dead to sin still live in it? If you, if you truly think about yourself as dead to sin, why would you still act as if sin is still your master? Sin, sin doesn't rule you anymore. It's not in charge of you anymore. You know, once I've disconnected the service, you know, if I get another bill, I don't really care about it, Right? Like, like, that bill doesn't belong to me. Like, the service is over with. I've paid all my, my bills. I, I, I really don't have any relationship to you anymore. You know, like, we're under new management in that sense. Sin shouldn't find in us a new victim because we're freed from it. Our union with Jesus Christ gives us the, the power to live for him. We've been set free from the slavery so that we would be made slaves to the righteousness of God. We're under new management. And that means we can say yes to Christ. Back over to the first Peter chapter two again, first Peter chapter two. This is what Peter talks about here. He lets us know that he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then he says this, for by his wounds you were healed. And what does he mean by that? You know, before you, uh, you know, go buy a tent and start a, a healing service, you might want to think about what the context of this is talking about, okay? What, what are we talking about? When it says that by his wounds you were healed, is there anything in the context that speaks about physical healing? There's, there's nothing in here. Do you see anything that talks about disease or physical disability or deformity? The, the answer is, is no. You, you, don't, you don't find it here. There's nothing in this passage that talks about physical disease. But what we do see in this passage, verse 22, is sin and deceit. Verse 23, reviling and threatening. Verse 24, the bearing of sins. So if I were to make a decision solely based on this context to say, what do I think Peter is talking about, physical healing or spiritual healing? The answer would be what? Spiritual healing. Flip over to Isaiah 53 real quick. Isaiah 53. Just to show you the the context of where... Peter took this verse from because the the, the context is just so helpful. Isaiah 53. Look at verse 5. Isaiah 53, starting at verse 5. Listen to what it says here. It says, But he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being or our peace fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the what? The iniquity of us all to fall on him. What is the context of Isaiah 53? Verse 5, transgressions, iniquities, our peace with God. And again, after that, the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him, and each of us has turned to his own way. And right smack dab in the middle of that, it says, by his scourging, we are healed. Based on the context again, what kind of healing is being discussed here? It's speaking about a spiritual healing. By his wounds, we are healed, is speaking about our spiritual health and well being. That our peace has been made with God, and God has forgiven us of our transgressions because of the death of Jesus Christ. And it's by his wounds that I'm able to die to my sin and live to righteousness. I've been set free, I've been made well, and we have all the help that we need because of the suffering of Jesus Christ, because of his death. He's the pattern, he's the example, he's the standard. He gives us the help because he's our substitute. And finally, if you're, you're wondering, where should I turn to for relief and, and comfort when I feel unprotected, the answer is the, the same. It's Jesus Christ and Jesus is our, our shepherd. Look back at verse 25, back to 1 Peter chapter two. 1 Peter chapter two, look at verse 25. It says, for you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. And here, Peter continues to rely on Isaiah 53. Uh, like I said, back in Isaiah 53, verse 6, it speaks about how all of us like sheep have gone astray. But who is the one who's the shepherd and guardian of our souls? The, the answer is, is Jesus Christ. What, what happens now when I, I, I know I'm saved, I belong to him, I know I have the power, but I still go off the beaten path? What, what, what help do I find then? The help is in Jesus Christ who guards us. He is the shepherd and guardian of our souls. If you know anything about sheep, and I don't know a whole lot, but sheep are defenseless. (laughs) Defenseless animals. Even without predators, they still need help because they don't do a good job taking care of themselves. I actually uh, saw this one clip of a a sheep that had 80 pounds of wool on him and was stuck in uh, the forest somewhere. You know, got caught up in a thicket and somebody rescued him and brought him back. That's how sheep are if they don't have anybody watching over them. That's how they are when they're just kind of like left to themselves. 80 pounds of wool and nowhere to go. You know, so, so the sheep was helpless. The, the, uh, one, one author says, no creature is more apt to go astray than a sheep. And when gone astray, none are more helpless, feeble, or exposed, or unable to find their way home again. If, if you allow a sheep to go astray, he's not coming back to the fold. He, he needs to stay in the herd if he goes off by himself. He's done for. That's, that's the way that sheep are. They're, they're different than dogs in that sense, right? Yeah, I remember uh, growing up, I had, a, I had a dog. My mom probably won't want me sharing the story, but, but I will anyway. Sorry, Mom. <laughs> I remember I had, had this dog, and um, uh, I, I really shouldn't have had a dog because I didn't know what to do with it, other than just kind of play with it and feed it and, you know, just let them run in the yard or whatever. And my mom got tired of it. She was just like, you know, you're making a mess of the place. You don't take care of them. And one day while I wasn't home, she took the dog out, you know, to this location where she thought somebody might pick him up and take care of him. And she let him go. Just let him go. And I came home and I'm like, you know, hey, where's Rocky at? And uh, Rocky was gone. (laughs) There was no Rocky to be found. It was uh, about two to three weeks later. Rocky found his way home. (laughs) Rocky found his way home. I don't know how he did it. But the nose knows, right? You know, somehow Rocky found his way back home. That's not sheep. The Bible doesn't describe us. I mean, actually, the Bible does describe us as dogs, <laughs> unbelievers as dogs. But the Bible says that we're like sheep. We're, we're helpless. When we're on our own, we, we need help. Like, like, Lord, don't leave me. Don't let me stray. Like, like that, that, that hymn that we often sing, you know, um, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That would be all of us. I remember MacArthur made the statement, if I could lose my salvation, I'd lose it every day. If it was up to me, but it's not up to me. I have a shepherd and a guardian of my soul. I have somebody who takes care of me. Praise God for that, right? And the sheep aren't the ones looking for the shepherd. (laughs) You get that? (laughs) The sheep don't look for the shepherd. It's the shepherd that looks for the sheep. We're the ones that are wandering. The, the, the word for, for wander, it's the, uh, the word planato, where we actually get our English word planets from, you know, describing like, kind of like these, these bodies of mass that are just kind of floating out in space, kind of like aimlessly, you know, in one sense. But here it says that, that we're like, like sheep who just kind of wander around, straying aimlessly. Like, what's, what's the course that we have? We are lost and we get more lost and then we get more lost. I mean, that's how we are if you just leave us to ourselves. So how do we return to the shepherd and guardian of our souls? It's because he's the one who's looking for us. That's how we return. John 15 verse 16 says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Romans 3 verse 11 says, there is none who seeks after God. That's why God has to seek us. How do we return to the shepherd and guardian of our souls? It's because we hear the voice of the shepherd. <laughs> That's how, how it happens. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice, right? And I know them and they follow me. We need a shepherd. We need a guardian, somebody to watch over our souls. And later on in First Peter, Peter will actually call Jesus the chief shepherd. Jesus is the chief shepherd. You know, those who uh, serve underneath him were the under shepherds, you know, as pastors and teachers. But Jesus is the chief shepherd. He's the one who ultimately watches over our souls. He's the guardian. He uses the, the word episkopos, uh, which uh, uses for, like, uh, this term for overseer or guardian or uh, bishop in some of your translations. And it emphasizes here the, the supervision that Jesus gives to us. Jesus is the shepherd of our souls, and he proved his commitment to his sheep by laying down his life for the sheep. If you want to know how much the shepherd loves you, flip over to John chapter 10. How much does this shepherd love and care for the sheep that are under his supervision? Look at John chapter 10, start at verse 11. John chapter 10, verse 11. Listen to what he says here. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who is not the owner of the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. Jesus is concerned. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Even as the father knows me and I know the father and I laid down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. How much does the shepherd love love us, he lays his life down. He lays his life down. He lays his life down over and over and over again. We learn of the the love of of Jesus Christ in laying down his life for the sheep. And if you're you're here today and you're an unbeliever, you don't know Jesus Christ, you haven't given your life to Jesus Christ, I want to let you know that you fall below the standard, that there's a, a standard that's been set for you, a standard of perfect righteousness, and you can't meet that standard. I want to let you know that today, if, if you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ, that you don't have a substitute for your sins. That instead of one who's paid for your sins, you have to pay for your own sins. And the Bible lets us know that that payment would be an eternal payment for sin. Jesus Christ could pay for the sins of all who would ever believe because he was the eternal son of God. And because of the, the worth of his sacrifice, his one-time sacrifice could pay for everyone who would ever believe. He could do that in three hours on the cross as he suffered, as Peter talks about. If you have to suffer for your own sin, guess how long it would take you to pay for it? For eternity. There is no final day when you can say, I've paid enough. Because God is so eternally holy. You've offended the eternal one. And the only way to pay back for a sin against an eternal one is to pay eternally. That's the only way to pay for it. If you don't have Jesus Christ, you don't have that substitute. And if you don't have Jesus Christ, you also don't have a shepherd. You don't have anybody that's watching out for you. You don't have anybody that's guarding over your soul. You're left to yourself to stray until you hear the voice of the Savior calling. And I pray that today in the gospel of Jesus Christ, understanding that there was one who came, who lived, who died, who rose again, for all who would believe, all who would repent, all who would turn to him, I pray that you would hear the voice of Christ calling you today. And that you would follow, that you would be a sheep who would hear his voice and turn to him. Come to Christ and find eternal life. It's only in Jesus Christ that we can find life. And for those of you who are suffering unjustly, uh, whether that's under the, the uh, government or underneath an employer, you know, whatever sphere of life you find yourself being slandered, falsely accused, insulted, verbally abused, harshly treated, what I want you to know is that you can look to Jesus Christ. <laughs> And you can find in him all that you need to endure and all that you need to glorify God in that situation because Jesus Christ is the answer. What does Jesus Christ have to say about our suffering and what we endure? Absolutely everything. The the hymn writer says, man of sorrows, what a name. For the son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. Spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah. What a Savior. We have a Savior, don't we? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, and we thank you so much for this text. Father, we thank you for the Savior that we have, the one who is our standard, the one who is our substitute the one who is our shepherd. Father, all of these truths we find in this text. And Father, I pray that we would glorify and honor you, Lord, as as the one that that we need, all that we need, we find in you. And Father, I pray that you would help us, Lord, in our suffering, uh, that we would submit ourselves to Jesus Christ and that we would trace our lives over his life. In Jesus' name, we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church.
0: To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events or where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating CDs and all digital files.